Welcome to Living With, a podcast about the stories and people behind Health Union. Health Union integrates the power of human connection and technology, uniting people in the shared experiences of life with chronic health conditions. I'm Emily Downward. This episode is part of our series featuring the 2022 Social Health Award winners. The Social Health Awards recognize and celebrate those individuals who are essential to the ongoing conversations and connections made through social health. The Revolutionary Researcher Award aims to celebrate those who refuse to let medical jargon and data slow them down. This patient leader stays up to date on the latest research and treatments and has a knack for transforming complex information into layman's term for the greater community. Our Revolutionary Researcher Award for 2022 goes to Aaron Blocker. Aaron lives with Crohn's disease and an ultra-rare genetic metabolic bone disease called hypophosphatasia. Over the last 10 years, Aaron has been heavily involved in patient advocacy related to inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, building an online community of more than 30,000 patients and caregivers who have been affected in some way by IBD. Aaron likes to use his background in scientific research to break down those hard-to-understand topics related to the disease so that patients can understand the most recent research and breakthroughs. After being diagnosed with his ultra-rare case of hypophosphatasia in 2017, his advocacy shifted to include the rare disease community. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on winning this award. What does this mean to you? I mean, so for, for me in general, I mean, you know, patient advocacy work has never been about winning an award. Um, but when that does happen, um, you know, it's very humbling to, to win something like this, to be nominated, um, because to me, it kind of means that the work that I've been doing and the time that I've put in really has resonated with the community, um, with other patients and caregivers. Um, so the recognition is, it really is wonderful, but it's also humbling, um, to, but also great to know that my work has impacted at least one person, uh, you know, so that they, somebody felt inclined enough to nominate me so it, it truly is an honor and it's just very humbling to be able, to be in this position to have won this award this year so tell me a little bit about your health journey i i read the the piece on the washington post and would encourage all my listeners to go read that as well but you played a really active role in your diagnosis can you share that a little bit yes yeah, so when i was diagnosed with my ultra rare disease hypophosphatasia um, I actually came across the diagnosis, came up with sort of what it potentially could be. Um, you know, I was at a point in my life where I was in my master's degree, but I had, you know, I'd already had hip replacements and all of these surgeries, but I had to have more hip replacements, my third and fourth hip replacement in 2016, which was um, the, I was about a year into my master's, I had a year left. Um, and that point when I I like dislocated one of my hips after only about four years um, after my hip replacements, which is not supposed to happen. I subsequently had two more hip replacements that year, but that kind of was the breaking point for me where I thought that there's potentially something else going on um, that maybe it's not, you know, what they've told me. Maybe I, you know, I did have what's called avascular necrosis, which led to the hip replacements, but there was, um, I was diagnosed in between hip replacements with periosteoporosis, and there were just a lot of other things that 
came up that didn't didn't make sense. Um, so I sort of hit my breaking point. Uh, I was a very low point in my health journey, but nobody was doing anything, um, and I just felt like something was wrong. So I dug into my own medical records. Uh, you know, I looked at what I could just to see if there was anything that stood out, um, and there was. Um, I had severely low alkaline phosphatase, uh, which is just an enzyme, and I spent a few weeks kind of digging and came up with hypophosphatasia. There was sort of this checklist that I came across um, in some research, and I fit every single checklist. I checked every box, so I took it to one of my primary care doctors, and long story short, I went to a geneticist a few months later, and a couple months after that, my genetic test came back positive um, with hypophosphatasia. So it was a wild ride to me, close to a year to kind of get to that point because I wasn't diagnosed until 2017. Um, but I just felt something was wrong. And for me, I, my background is in biology and biomedical research. Um, so I just dug in and researched and ended up being right. Um, it was a very interesting time and, uh, you know, it was a little weird trying to diagnose myself, but the genetic results came back positive. So, yeah. That obviously you've told the story before and you you say it very matter of fact, but as <laughs> someone who's had one hip replacement, I can't imagine going through that four times. That's that's a lot. Yeah. So, I I can understand why that would kind of prompt you to say, "Wait a minute. You know, yeah. you're a young man and you've now had four hip replacements in addition to other things that you've experienced." So, wow. And I is there anyone in your local area that is familiar with hypophosphatasia and treats it, or where do you get your care? Yes, yeah, so the answer to that is no. Um, I, the primary care doctor, when I told him, it was great, um, was like, you know, he was like, I haven't really ever heard of this. It was like maybe like a short little snip in med school. Um, but he said that he could send me to a geneticist and the geneticist was also like, I've sort of heard of this, never seen a patient with it, never even, he was like, I've never been referred to a patient who potentially has it, and obviously I've never seen anybody in clinic or, or had the genetic testing for anybody's done. Um, but he said that he obviously could ha order the genetic test. Um, so after all of that, and it came back positive, um, they were very honest with me and told me that they did not feel comfortable treating me, and that was at the, te the only teaching hospital that we have here. Um, and none of the care team, you know, felt like they would be doing work in my best interest um, of trying to treat me, um, which I'm glad that they told me that. Um, so I actually go to Nashville at Vanderbilt, uh, Vanderbilt University. There's a specialist out there, um, Dr. DeHare, Catherine DeHare, who is one of the leading physicians in this disease. Um, there's only a few in the country, but about six hours away, so I travel at least twice a year to Nashville um, to Vanderbilt to be treated. Wow, and I hear this a lot from rare disease patients that because it is rare, and yours is ultra rare. What is what does ultra rare mean? So it um, when it affects, so mine affects one out of about two hundred thousand to two hundred fifty thousand. I mean, to three hundred fifty thousand people. Um, when it's like one in 200,000 um, or less, it's considered ultra rare. Um, so there's a very, these are a very, very small population of, of patients. Um, a few years ago, there was only 
documented like less than 2,000 in the country uh, of documented cases with it, uh, but it's about one every 200,000 or less is technically considered ultra rare. Wow. And so I think a lot of people with rare disease or ultra rare disease have to become an expert in their own disease pretty quickly, as you were just describing, because there's just not a lot of medical professionals that are aware of it. So I, I think that's what, what you're doing, helping educate people because of your background. It's it's so very beneficial for a lot of patients. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's a tough position to be in when you have to sort of manage your own care or figure out who to see or um, potentially have a diagnosis that nobody's ever heard of. So, you know, I should have been diagnosed way before um, I was. I had symptoms from birth and throughout my childhood and up until they told me at 18 years old that my hips were going bad. Um, you know, there are all these things that pointed to this disease, but because nobody ever really heard of it, people, literally every physician I've talked to is like, we only get like a brief stint of this in med school. Some, some physicians like, I've never heard of it. Um, so it, it puts a, it's a lot of burden on the patient and especially the rare disease community. So this feels like the right thing to do and to be able to help somebody else not go through that. Um, and I feel lucky, lucky to have been, you know, having the background that I did and everything that I went through, but yeah, it's, it's tough for, it's tough to be sick, but it's very tough to have an ultra rare disease that nobody is familiar with. What were some of those early symptoms? So I was born with um, skeletal abnormalities. I was born with severely bowed legs. Um, I wore braces as a child. Um, and then through throughout my sort of childhood and uh, teen years, I suffered a lot of like bone pain. I had scoliosis. Um, and then from about 12 to 18, I broke more bones than I can remember. Um, you know, hands, fingers, had multiple shoulder surgeries before I was um, 18. And, and so just a lot of different things that came up. And I, what kind of complicated everything is that I was a very, um, very like, I guess, frail, skinny, um, younger kid. And when I was 17 and diagnosed with Crohn's disease, they were like, well, maybe you're just malnourished. Maybe, maybe that leads to it. Maybe I just had an undiagnosed case of, you know, Crohn's disease and malnourishment, all of that. So it kind of threw, threw a extra a wrench in what was going on. Um, but yeah, from birth, I was born with very severe bowed legs and they just didn't know. It was more than what they consider baby bowing. It was uh, severe to the point to where I could have had surgery, but I would have had to learn to rewalk. Uh, at one point, it would have been very extensive. So they said as long as I could get around that we would just deal with it um and wore braces and stuff like that but yeah i between being born and 18 i my skeleton was just ravaged with you know broken bones and stuff like that so so the crohn's disease diagnosis while also in very important kind of complicated and delayed the other diagnosis yes and it still still complicates the treatment of my other disease as well but um you know i did a very short low dose of steroids right after I prednisone right after I was diagnosed, um, which is a common first step in treating, you know, a disease that 
is uh, stems from the immune system. So I, but it was very short um, in the beginning and very low dose. But once my hips started going bad and I developed avascular necrosis of the hips and technically my knees, um, they said, well, avascular necrosis, AVN, is a side effect of prednisone use. But they said it's usually in patients who have been on high doses of prednisone for a long time. And even the GI doctors at the time and the orthopedic doctors that told me about my hips are like, we've really only seen this in high dose steroid uses and that they've seen people who've been on steroids for years and they're bones are fine. Um, so the very short low dose of the steroid really devastated my skeleton. Um, and again, led to sort of led to hip replacements. But what we know now is that the prednisone use sort of kicked everything into overdrive. Um, and I already had osteoporosis and the prednisone just made that worse. And my hips were technically already going bad and the prednisone just made that worse. So yeah, wow. through a huge, uh, made everything very, very complicated. Um, and outside, you know, hindsight's 2020, but looking back, you know, they said that that's what happened is just kind of put the bone, the bone disease and a little bit of an overdrive at that point. It was a big clue, but unfortunately had a lot of negative side effects for you. Right. <laughs> yeah. Give and take. Yeah. What are some of the biggest struggles that someone living with a rare disease faces? I mean, I think that it's one is what we've already talked about is that there are not very many specialists, you know, that typically treat it, treat it or know about it, um, you know, especially in the community, the hypophosphatasia community. And most patients, if they do not live within a, you know, a certain area, a lot of us travel. Um, I would say the majority of, of hypophosphatasia patients travel for care. Um, and that's also true for a lot of rare disease patients. Um, and then, you know, there's the struggle of, of being the delay in diagnosis is really hard. Uh, you know, delay in diagnosis is hard for any type of chronic illness. You know, when you know that something's wrong, but they can't figure out what it is, it's just hard. Um, you feel like it's in your head and, and maybe you're making it up or maybe that you're not sick. And that is very, very true for rare disease patients because it takes a really long time for patients to get diagnosed. Um, there are some who get diagnosed early on but most of us are diagnosed way later um, in life. So it's just very difficult um, just to, to know that something's wrong, but to not know what it is and to feel like you're not being heard or that whatever is going on is maybe it's, it's you know, maybe it's not happening or something like that. So that's also very difficult to deal with. And I think, you know, there's this feeling of, in the ultra rare disease community, you know, there's a feeling of, of loneliness. You know, there are people with diseases who are super rare where there's, you know, only a couple of people in the world with it. Um, and there's just something about community and, and knowing somebody with the diseases you that's very helpful. So there's a lot of loneliness that can be, uh, that comes along with living with a rare disease. Um, so it's challenging from multiple, multiple different aspects. How does your advocacy help you cope with all that you're dealing with? So I think that for for me and, and my advocacy work in general was born out of wanting to meet other patients and hear from other patients and, you know, just have community. And that was the initial reason I sort of 
that into it and it kind of um, turned into patient advocacy over the, the years, but it was initially born out of wanting a community to be able to share my story and, you know, again, get into the science of stuff of these diseases and treatments and all of that. Um, you know, it, it provides a, a way of coping for me, but also a way of making sure that, you know, somebody, I want patients to have somebody that they can talk to and I, I know the importance of communities. And so continue to do my advocacy work, just one, it helps me. Um, it's definitely a coping mechanism for me. It, it's something that makes me feel like, you know, all the stuff that I've been through and everything I've been through, it makes it feel like I'm, you know, doing something with that and turning a bad situation into something that is helping others and is useful. And um, so it's, it's important to me, and I think that all patients should be active in their care and that patients deserve a seat at the table and a voice, and, and I think that my advocacy work helps that. So, yeah, it's, it's extremely important, but also, again, it's, it's definitely been a coping mechanism for me. That's great. And talking about a seat at the table, how have you worked with the healthcare industry to ensure that the patient voice is heard? Yeah, so I, I've had some really awesome opportunities over the, the last few years to um, to work with pharmaceutical companies and nonprofit foundations um, to, you know, really make sure that any, you know, I believe that any decision that is made that's going to affect patients is should include the patient's, you know, voice and their opinion on it. Um, and I've had a really cool opportunities to be on advisory boards for pharmaceutical companies. Um, I sit on a, a peer review board for a foundation um, as a patient reviewer. Um, and I've helped, you know, I've had opportunities to help build educational materials. And, uh, you know, I get to be on an FDA panel, you know, later um, to, to do that, just to make sure that, again, that the patient voice is heard. And I think that there's never been a better time to engage pharmaceutical companies and healthcare than it is now. I mean, we, they're really looking to engage patients now. And um, so, yeah, I've, I've had some really cool opportunities. I don't, not to like toot my own horn or anything like that. I try to do it, you know, um, kind of quietly. Um, but yeah, it's been really, really cool to, to do that and to have these in-depth conversations with these pharmaceutical companies, healthcare to, to make sure that they understand what patients are going through and that their focus is the patient. Um, you know, I spoke with uh, a pharmaceutical company earlier this year on rare disease day and got to share my story with about 300 employees. And, um, you know, the goal was to make sure that, you know, these, it was employees who were in the research labs and just your um, work in R and D and stuff like that. And, it provided them a look at what their work is going towards. Um, so yeah, it's stuff like that. And I get to work with really cool companies to, to create content and educate patients and make sure that their focus is where it should be. I bet that was very inspiring for those researchers. Helps, helps keep that humanity front, front of yeah. mind. So how do you translate scientific information for your community? So it, it evolves constantly. Um, you know, we are living in a day and age where short form video is the way to kind of do that. Um, but for me, it's a process. Um, you know, I 
thankfully, would, you know, I had, when I did my master's degree, um, it was research based, and I had several years worth of uh, classes on how to break down research papers and how to find research and how to source stuff out. And my advocacy, like when I break down science, is very similar to that. Um, I do my best to stay on top of the research and get all these alerts and stuff about what's going on. And then I get what I can. And then I think of how, you know, I try to throw in myself as a patient, you know, how would I respond to this if I didn't have this background and what, what kind of works, but also engage the community. Um, I ask them what works and what doesn't work and what are things that they may not understand about the process. Um, so there's a lot of community involvement in how I approach certain topics. Um, but yeah, it's really a lot of work and then switching my patient side on to say, you know, hey, what makes sense and what is something that I would respond to if I were, you know, reading this online. And I take it from that. And I luckily have a lot of friends who are happy to proof my work and read it and make sure that it makes sense to them as well. And then, um, again, I, I'd love to involve the community and engage the community. So any work that I try to put out, I just say, hey, does this make sense? And, you know, get a lot of feedback. And I think that's a cool part, too, to, to keep the community involved and to have their insight and to make sure that what I do and it's very hard. I mean, we read all these big words all the time about our treatments and treatments and disease and, you know, science is very confusing some days when they're throwing all these things. And I think what's missing is, you know, there are amazing physicians and scientists and researchers out there, but they don't always know how to communicate that to the patient community. Um, so I think to, to have a, that middle person um, to kind of translate that is huge. But yeah, I approach it in a very initially scientific way and research and then try to figure out and determine what would make sense to the patients and what would make sense to me as a patient. Yeah, I love that you're not only just translating the medical jargon and, and the high-tech research, but you're also giving that patient voice. So it's kind of translation in two ways. Yep. What would you say to encourage someone who is in that process of struggling to get the right, right diagnosis? Well, I tell people all the time, is, and just in general, um, is trust yourself, trust that you, I mean, we are more in tune with our bodies than anybody ever will be or could be, um, and that, you know, there that is just part, one huge part of it is that realizing that doctors and healthcare and these, you know, medical professionals are a huge part of this, but again, they don't exactly know how you feel and they don't know what you're sort of going through. Um, but we are, you're usually pretty good at knowing when something is wrong. Um, and, you know, knowing that something just feels off. Um, so primarily it's just trust yourself, trust your gut. Um, and then it's very discouraging to kind of get to a point where you've seen a bunch of physicians and you know, healthcare professionals and, and they sort of are stumped um, on what's going on and they don't have an answer. Um, so my thing is, excuse me, my thing is to don't ever be afraid to get a second opinion or a third opinion or a fourth opinion. Um, you know, the, I tell people too, you know, physicians work for you, the healthcare system is supposed to work for you. 
So don't feel, uh, be afraid or worry that your physician's going to get upset if you get a second opinion or a third opinion. Um, so it's, it's really just stick to it and push through and try to be as active in your care as possible. Um, ask questions. Um, if there's something that you don't understand, get an explanation. And, and two, if, I mean, if you have a physician that's upset that you get a second opinion, you probably need a new, new physician. I mean, they should be okay with you getting a second opinion as well. Uh, but yeah, it's really just trusting yourself and, you know, keeping up with everything that you kind of go through. And I know that a lot of people don't have the, the will or the, um, not necessarily the will, but the sort of push to, to be as active in your care, but you have to be like, you, you have to be active in your care and you need to um, just trust yourself because nine times out of 10, you're going to be right. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much for your time today and congratulations again on winning the award. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You can find Aaron on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Aaron Blocker with an underscore at the end. Health Union is the leader in social health with 41 condition-specific online communities and the Social Health Network, which encompasses more than 100,000 patient leaders covering nearly every health condition. You can learn more at health-union.com. Thank you for listening to Living With. I'm Emily Downward. <laughs>